0: Perhaps for many of us, all experience merely defines, so to speak, the shape of that gap where our love of God ought to be. It is not enough. It is something. If we cannot practice the presence of God, it is something to practice the absence of God, to become increasingly aware of our unawareness, till we feel like men who should stand beside a great cataract and hear no noise, or like a man who, in a story, who looks in a mirror and finds no face there, or a man in a dream who stretches out his hand to visible objects and gets no sensation of touch. To know that one is dreaming is to be no longer perfectly asleep. But for news of the fully waking world, you must go to my betters.
1: This is Pints with Jack, Season Five, Episode Twenty Eight. The Four Loves, Chapter Six, Charity, Part Three. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Pints with Jack is your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David, and myself, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis, the season we're talking about love slowly and deliberately working our way through the four loves. The book where Lewis writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. And today we come to the final part of the final chapter. Mm-hmm. But first, how are you all feeling, gentlemen?
0: Well, I'm having a great afternoon, a great morning. Um, went to chapel this morning, and I don't know if you've ever been at worship and just kind of got ambushed by peace. Uh, I've got a million things going on, going on. I've got deadlines whooshing past me. There's a million things to be super stressed about, but I'm sitting there in chapel and just felt this divine peace envelop me. And then it just kind of turned into a Holy Spirit day. I had an unexpected mm. meeting with an old friend from England that may turn into some conferences and stuff together this summer. It just was, uh, just was miraculous. And Um, And then just got off the phone with Patty Callahan and she and I are planning on our uh, uh, breakout session in Oxford at Oxford's conference. And so it's just been a marvelous day. In fact, listeners, I blew off Matt and David without even realizing that I was doing so, uh, missed our planned time. So they were very gracious to um, postpone and to meet me a little bit later. So here we are.
1: We are close to my bedtime, by the way, which means this is going to be, this is a sacrifice. It's practically nearly eight o'clock. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No, no. I'm excited. You might get a little more lethargic, Matt, today. We'll see how it plays out.
2: hopefully it'll just keep you in line. (laughs) Well, well, life for (laughs) me is actually pretty strange at the moment, because my parents-in-law are visiting relatives in Kentucky. So Marie hitched a ride and took our son so that the relatives in Kentucky could meet him, which basically means that I am flying solo for the next few days.
0: Oh, my gosh a very feed strange. Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I told my mother-in-law I, I might lose some weight, but I'll get much more sleep. <laughs> what
1: are What are the top two things you're looking forward to doing in this time of solitude?
2: Going to bed early, mm-hmm. sleeping through the night. <laughs>
1: okay, what's a, what's the third one? I knew sleep was going to be one of them. I want another. Um,
2: I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of. A little giddy with freedom? I, I You know when you just don't know what to do with yourself? It's like, what, what did yeah. I used to do? I used to do things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a good answer.
2: Uh, but something else that happened recently is mm-hmm. uh, Matt and I, we spoke to two more of our Patreon supporters. We video chatted with them on Sunday, and it was delightful.
1: Mm-hmm. We spoke
2: to Deborah in Australia and Snort, and he will forever be called Snort because he had no story to tell us. There is no reason, <laughs> rhyme or reason behind that name. So really? please write into us and uh, give us better suggestions than the lack <laughs> of story that we heard.
0: You know what? We should have like a, a contest or something and whoever gives the, whoever gives the best story for what Snort, where Snort came from. Maybe he was the fourth cave troll.
1: I was sort of happy and relieved that there was no, it wasn't a real nickname because I had a a mini silent internal panic attack on the episode where we referenced his name and I sort of laughed and made fun of the name Snort and it dawned on me, what if this is actually a genuine nickname (laughs) that he's been called? And I really was like, oh, man, I just was really cruel to a person's name. <laughs> and that's just terrible to do. So when he got on and he's sort of like, oh, I, just, I, I made it up and just threw it in because I don't want to put my real name. I'm like, oh, whew.
2: <laughs> Dodged a bullet. But it's good that you're feeling penitent because it's Ash Wednesday at the time of recording in two days. Oh, yeah. Mm. Pancake
0: supper tomorrow night. Oh, <laughs> Maybe people teased him as a child and he said, snort very funny. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well played andrew
2: see andrew i laugh at your jokes <laughs> i told an amazing joke before we started nothing
0: <laughs> i'm sorry i
2: just was i totally missed it so sorry you are overwhelmed with the hilarity so time for a beverage and a toast well i am drinking ashintoshin which is uh Rather delicious, because I am now out of all of Matt's brown bag specials, bar one, (laughs) which we're saving for the retrospective.
1: I can't tell if, if the next time I go to Inland, I want to do this again. Because no. to some degree the, the the lack of appreciation for the deliciousness of a scotch makes me know but the the desire to throw really bad scotch you again for another 8 <laughs> shows maybe makes me at a yes. I don't know what the net effect is. No. I,
0: I think the issue is send more delicious scotch. <laughs> I need to do
1: better selecting. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I okay. am drinking actually it's we've already said thank you but Another big thank you to Bud, because I officially have used the very gracious gift that he gave us, and me specifically in this case, to buy an Aberlour 16 single malt. Yeah, Aberlour. Aberlour. I've never had that before. So I am Mm. very excited for this scotch.
0: Mm. Have you tasted it yet?
1: I have. It's fantastic. Ah.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I dug into my box of Murray's and I got the the youngest, the 12-year-old, Mm, good luck. Uh, Glenn it's a space Elgin heritage. I generally am not a space guy. I am a smoky guy, but, you know, scotch is scotch. So let's see if it's a, a matte brown bag. And today we are toasting Christiana Line. And so, Christiana, we uh, toast you and pray that you have a wonderful Fat Tuesday, um, or had a wonderful Fat Tuesday by the time uh, you hear this, and that you have a holy Lent, and that God in your in your giving up and in your in your choosing what to add, we'll meet you in these uh, in these seven weeks as we head towards Easter. So to Christiana, cheers! Cheers! Cheers!
1: This one's a space single malt. I'm very excited. It's delicious.
2: <laughs> well, while you're on that, let me take this home. So far in the four loves. In chapter 1 and 2, Jack introduced some love terminology, need love, gift love, and appreciative love. And by considering patriotism and the love of nature, he demonstrated his thesis that loves become demonic when they're given godlike status. In chapter 3, we explored Storgi. In chapter 4, we talked about Philia. And in chapter 5, we discussed Eros. And at the start of this month, we began chapter 6 on charity. Lewis explained that our natural loves must be tended like a garden to prevent them from getting out of control. He then began to consider how our natural loves can rival the love of God, although he did warn us that most of us must first deal with our own selfishness, since we tend to put ourselves before others. Hmm. Jack then pushed back on his understanding of St. Augustine, saying that there is no such thing as a safe investment when it comes to love. And then last week, we considered what it meant for a love to be inordinate, and we began relating divine love to the natural loves. We heard how God, who is pure gift love, implants gift love and need love into our very natures, but also supplements them with supernatural versions, both in relation to our neighbors and to God himself. Hmm. Wonderful.
0: And all of this is uh, just basically a summary of what you see in Orwell, Until We Have Faces. (laughs) I'm inviting you all to drink
2: Matt, slow down, this is going to be a long episode
0: (laughs) With that, I'm pouring the rest of the Glen Moray, I like it I'm going to try it with a little water
2: Well, on to my 100 word summary of the final section of the final chapter of The Four Loves Jack says that some natural loves may need to be renounced Others must remain, but only after being put at the service of charity, raised to a higher level as humanity is elevated into the divine at the Incarnation. The invitation to thus transform our natural loves meets us in every frustration of Storgi, Philia and Eros. This transformation is inexorable, since only that which has died and been raised with love himself belongs in heaven. Our hearts are restless for God. And it is only out of this relationship that all our other loves flow. So, in the previous episode, we spoke about how when God steps in, he can impart supernatural need love and gift love, both in relation to himself and in relation to our fellow man. He explained how we recognise our need for God and our need for each other, and we want to give all that we have to both. However, as we begin this final section... Lewis tells us that this isn't the only thing which can happen when God gets involved. Hmm. Hmm. He says that two other things may happen. The first thing which might happen is that God might demand that a natural love be completely renounced. And he gives the example of Abraham, who has to leave his family to go to the promised land. And he gives the example of uh, a forbidden erotic love, which must be renounced. And he says that these all make sense. They're fairly easy to understand. But he says that a second thing may also happen, and this is a little harder to grasp. And this is where a natural love is allowed to continue, but only following a transformation. So what exactly happens in this situation? Jack writes, In such a case, the divine love does not substitute itself for the natural, as if we had to throw away our silver to make room for the gold. The natural loves are summoned to become modes of charity, while also remaining the natural loves they were. Hmm. And to explain what he means, Lewis compares this process to the incarnation. He says that as Christ is perfect God and perfect man, the natural loves are called to become perfect charity and also perfect natural loves.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: In the incarnation, humanity is taken up into divinity, not the other way around. And likewise, in this love transformation, the natural love is taken up into charity. He says that it's made the tuned and obedient instrument of love himself. Mm -hmm. And he says that all the very natural activities which are prompted by the natural loves, he talks about a game, a joke, a drink together, a chat, a walk, the act of Venus, he says that these can become the very means of communicating charity, either in its need-love form or in its gift-love form. And he says that nothing is too trivial, nothing is too animal, that can't be transformed in this way. And we catch occasional glimpses of this from time to time just as we're living our lives. But Jack says that the total and secure transformation of a natural love into a mode of charity is a work so difficult that perhaps no fallen man has ever come within sight of doing it perfectly. Hmm. What do you guys make of what he says here? Because I think this is the first real shift in the book where he's explaining how Hmm. the supernatural love and the natural love interact. Mm-hmm.
1: This really does make me think of theosis in a pretty big way. It goes back to the question I've asked multiple times you guys, and I think we've had pretty decently sufficient answers, but this adds further to it of what does this look like? How does this happen? How does the divine love and the natural love interact? It's one thing to say the divine love can kind of save the natural love from itself or perfect. it. It's another to, to for me at least, to understand a causal mechanism. And we've talked about so far the virtuous living in the role that we can somewhat play in that. But then we've also talked about grace, and that grace is just like a catch-all term. And I think here this made me think of theosis. And when I think of theosis in the more broader sense of the word, I think, how do I partake in theosis, which is where the Son of God became man so man can become sons of God. We partake in that divine life, but we still have our natural life too. So we got both the natural and the divine going on in our life. It's it's so much through if at least from the denomination that I come from, and Andrews, the sacramental life plays a very big role in that. In just participating in that sacramental life, I mean, if you're not a part of that sacramental, that sacramental denomination, we talk about the pulsating dance of the Trinitarian life and and, and to prayer in that journey, you can you can partake in that as well. So, the same things that I've talked about in theosis, I think, apply here as you undergo that transformation. I honestly, it almost sounds like a cop out, but your loves, your love's more or less become transformed through that process. And so the more you partake in that journey of, of mm-hmm. deification, divinization, what, you, know, you don't have to use the word theosis that's a little bit more Eastern, but uh, that, that plays out.
0: Hmm. So I like this. This makes me think of a couple of things. Um, one of which uh, my wife uh, and her family as kind of a shorthand for understanding each other's personalities are big fans of the MBTI. Uh, the Myers-Briggs, um, personality assessment, and that helps them to understand each other and their own needs. So they're not fanatically devoted to it, but it's a, it's a great shorthand. And I love what my wife says about the different personality types. She says that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of all of the personality types. And so as we become closer to Christ, perhaps we we start to take on some of the other personality, uh, elements, um, and maybe that's what what our perfected our perfected natures will be. But mostly, I was just so bowled away. I had forgotten this quote. I'm so glad, David, that you pointed it out and that you highlighted it. That um, it, the divine love does not substitute itself for the natural, as if we had to throw away our silver to make room for the gold. And it reminds me of what Michael Ward talks about in in Planet Narnia, that. Jupiter, Jove, the Roman god with all of the astrological and all the mythological and all the planetary associations with Job, the, jo- the Jove, the Jove had for the medieval, that Aslan appears like Jove. So it's Jove subspecie Christe, right? It's Jove portrayed uh, with Christ-like elements, right? And so all of the all of the gods of mythology bow their knee to Christ, but they have some aspect of God's personality, which is why they can be gods at all. And so Christ invades them and Aslan embodies kind of some of these jovial or Jovian uh, qualities. And so here's this Christ figure that has some aspect of the divine. And Lewis, I don't think really uh, kind of held to the opposition of paganism to Christianity. Remember, he called himself a converted pagan in a land of apostate Puritans. Pagan simply means to believe in many gods. And Lewis saw in those many gods elements of godlike, godlike, you know, fragments of godlike, godlike. And so the natural loves will have elements of God's nature, but charity will raise them to the point that they are, uh, that they are as all that they could be. I'll I'll suggest it like this: a Christian marriage or a Christian friendship. I've had wonderful friendships before I was a Christian. I've had wonderful cre- friendships with people who weren't Christians, but in a Christian friendship where both are seeking to grow in their knowledge and grace of God, that is what Lewis calls golden sessions. Is there anything better on earth than to be around a fire with a circle of Christian friends? The divine charity, unconditional love, love is patient, love is kind, when that invades all that we love about our friends. Uh, I just experienced it today. My friends here on Pines with Jack were very forbearing to me, even though I completely didn't note it on the calendar and completely blew it off. They were very flexible towards me. And that's grace strengthening friendship and so that's kind of the kenosis supernatural of God, grace exactly that you all showed <laughs>
2: very but that's natural. the stooping of love <laughs> what i like about this section is his emphasis on the fact that it's the very natural everyday activities these can become modes for the highest love that there is mm-hmm. i love i love that quotidian everyday element mm-hmm to the greatest love that there is, that it can look very ordinary, but there's something else that's behind it that's powering it, which takes it far beyond its natural level. And that's where Lewis chucks us under the chin.
0: There's always more, and it's always higher, and there's always more to see about God. In, even in our everyday things, and that's charity continuing in the form of Christ to stoop to be incarnate, to stoop to be dead, to die the death on the cross, and then to rise again. And so that's the the mode of this of this world. Humble yourself before God's mighty hand, and He will exalt you.
2: And that's the pattern of the universe that He followed. In the next section, Lewis describes how all this beautiful theology that we've just been talking about. Uh, about how charity can transform and elevate natural loves, how it can go wrong, and it's 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 really out of right out of screw tape. It's, you, you could you could you, you could easily have found yourself in one of Screw Tape's letters, because he goes on to describe a way in which an overly vocal Christian or circle of Christians can real, make a real mess of this. He says they can make a show in their overt behaviour, and especially in their words, of having achieved the thing itself, an elaborate, fussy, embarrassing, and intolerant show. Such people make every trifle a matter of explicitly spiritual importance. They're always unnecessarily asking and insufferably offering forgiveness. Hmm. And as far as Jack's concerned, a more no-nonsense, less showy approach is needed. He he talks about letting a meal, a night's sleep, or a joke mend all. Hmm. And he seems to think that the more that this becomes second nature, that we don't even so much think about it, uh, the better. Hmm.
0: Kristen and I have, um, over the last five years of our marriage, learned one way to resolve a fight or a disagreement where we're bugged with each other. And I'm sure she's bugged with me more than I'm bugged with her because, you know, she has to live with me. You can only imagine how annoying that is.
2: But um, oh, I can. I can. Oh, no, you can't.
0: Oh, it's far <laughs> worse. It's far worse. You haven't seen enough badness in life. You're not old enough to know how bad it could be living with me. But sometimes when we squabble and we realize that it's just a surface thing, sometimes we resolve it by saying exactly this. You ready? Puh. Puh. We just blow it away. We just like. <laughs> That's not, a, you got in my way, or I got in your way, or I was trying to whatever, whatever the annoyance is, and it seems real enough and and at the time, but we realize that that doesn't even come close to touching how much we love each other. And do I really want to dig my heels in on this and, you know, fight it all the way down to find out who was right and who was wrong? You know, so letting a, a meal, a night's sleep or a joke meant all, just letting it go because this is the person who my soul loves. This is the person who I will live and die with, right? And so why should I spend my time being frustrated or annoyed? One of the things that I've, ways that I've been trying to grow in love for Kristen is just not be annoyed with her. Even if she does something that I personally find annoying, or if I'm annoyed, swallow it, give it to the Lord, and don't express it. And sometimes that's the most erotic thing that I can do, (laughs) <laughs> is not express it when I'm frustrated. And then sometimes I can even arise to the grace of saying, maybe I'm frustrated because I'm a jerk
2: or mm-hmm. tired or
0: having a bad day, not because she did anything that was inherently frustrating. And so this idea of letting things go and giving them over so that to create a space for divine love to come in, uh, I think that's so important. I'm so glad to, to read this again.
2: Yeah, Marie and I actually had a moment like that a couple of weeks ago. Did you? She said something, I said something, I was really irritated. And about five minutes later, we were sitting down watching a show, and I just paused it for a moment. I'm sorry, I was a jerk. She went, Yeah, it's fine. We hit play, and then we carried <laughs> on. And think, it, was, it was just like the relief of, ugh, I felt all that building up, and ugh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I might use that sometime, David.
2: <laughs> oh, I mean, apologizing I'm sorry, David. is, is I'm a an jerk. important skill in marriage.
0: Mm, it it absolutely is. Mark Hurd, the wonderful singer-songwriter who passed away far too early in the early 90s at age 40. He said he's got a song where he said, It's not you. I'm I'll be okay. I'm just a jerk is all. Um, you know, it's not you. It's 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 not your fault. I was just being a jerk. Mm. And we can be petty jerks. And one of the wonderful things that Kristen has held up to me is just how often I'm a petty jerk. But hopefully I at least see it more often and can let it go. And that's divine love reaching into Eros and helping me hopefully become a bit better of a man. Because I don't think I need to be a priest and a petty jerk at the same time. So I should probably work on one of those or both.
2: Yes, (laughs) or learn to multitask. Who knows? Uh, Yes, yes. (laughs) In the next section, Jack explains that we're constantly invited to submit our natural loves for transformation to be taken up into and to be put to the service of charity. In what way does he say that we receive these invitations?
1: In everything you guys just said. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Literally, you guys just described it in (laughs) in your marriages. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: The phrase he uses is frictions and frustrations. And his point is that every time you encounter those, that is an invitation. That is an invitation to uh, supplement your natural love with something higher and better. And, and he says that we can either do that and learn the lesson, or if we're egotists, what we'll do is we'll typically blame the object of our love for this friction and frustration we're feeling towards them. Hmm. And it actually really reminded me of a line from St. Jose Maria Escrivá. He said, don't say that person gets on my nerves. Think, so don't say, but think, that person sanctifies me.
0: Hmm, hmm.
1: David, how often have you thought that with me?
0: (laughs) We're still working on it, Matt.
2: (laughs) According to St. Maria Escrivá, I'm not meant to say it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, and I think that um, uh, St. Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh um, Mm -hmm. and how he asked for that to be removed. We don't know what it was. Some people say it was a wife. Some people say it was an illness. Who knows? Um, And Christ said, My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And I think Jack had many, many years, decades of it with Mrs. Moore Hmm. where she probably got on his last nerve, but to let that go and to let that go, he says somewhere, the deuced thing about forgiveness is that you work it all up on a Monday and then on Wednesday you have to work it up all over again, right? (laughs) Um, Forgiveness doesn't stay put. And so I think that's part of why I love the liturgical tradition of saying the Lord's Prayer every day. Um, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. For me, I hate that line in the Lord's Prayer (laughs) because I hope God forgives me way better than I forgive those who trespass against me.
2: (laughs) Hmm. And funnily enough, Jack, he regards this transformation as so important That we're actually almost at a disadvantage if we have loves where there are fairly few frictions and frustrations you have a really good relationship with your siblings with your parents with your spouse with your friends and he says you're at a disadvantage because you're not prompted (laughs) when you experience those frictions and frustrations that's a prompt for you to do something about it and he says if if you if you're generally free of these things Uh, you might not realize that your natural love needs to be aided by something greater and better. Mm -hmm.
1: So does this mean I need to seek out a significant other that annoys me?
2: (laughs) Matt,
0: you don't have to seek one out that annoys you. Just seek one out and assume that you'll never be annoyed and then wait six months. Because if you are not annoyed, at least you'll be profoundly annoying.
1: <laughs> oh, hey, that's a good, that is a great answer, Andrew. I like it.
2: And if you recall the episode with Marie, I commented the fact that on our first date, she was 20 minutes late. She she has helped me grow in holiness and patience in many ways. Mm.
1: That still <laughs> amazes me, actually. 20 minutes, I've been on dates like five, seven, eight, you know, 20 is, 20 is meaningful because a date can be just an hour and a half or two hours. You're like 25% of the date.
2: Well, she was getting her nails did.
0: Yeah. Well, (laughs) she wanted to look pretty for you and it worked obviously. You know, Charles (laughs) Williams talks about this substitution, substitution where one person can suffer pain for someone else. Mm. um Lewis did it for Joy Davidman he prayed to be substituted for her pain in her leg and sure enough her leg began healing and jacks began hurting um when i i got a tattoo on my right arm of the canterbury cross the cross outside of canterbury cathedral because of my commitment to the english tradition um and it hurt like a bit. dickens and it hurt way more than my first tattoo um which is the hebrew word for thy loving kindness and Keep meaning I to ask bothered- you. Is that Hesed? It's Hesed and then Ka. So it's the um, it's the vocative thy. So it's loving thy loving kindness. Oh, okay. Um and so the Hebrew word is pronounced hastika, but if it were without the thy, it would be hesed. Yeah. Okay. So that's exactly what it is. Um, and it's from my my great aunt's prayer book. And I just need to re- be reminded of God's loving kindness, and I need to be reminded of the cross. But when I was getting my tattoo of the cross and it hurt so badly, I was bothered by it until I realized, wait a minute i can I can offer that pain to God um and our our listener, Brittany White, was going through an issue at the time, and so I purposefully offered the pain of the tattoo for her and for others who I knew and asked if God would give me their pain and relieve their pain because of this pain that I was going through. And when that happened, I wanted it to hurt more than it did. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bear that pain for the sake of these others. And all of a sudden, it switched. And Lewis does this all the time. He says, maybe mere Christianity, how imagination can make even dull things all the better. And he says, a boy eating his cold meat if he dips it in story and pretends like he is a great Indian warrior, Native American warrior who has killed the meat himself, then the cold meat becomes the fruit of his great hunt. So, um, so you can transform things by, and, and again, he says, and this is, I think, good for Lent. He said, even a missed meal, I've said it before, even a missed meal taken in the right spirit can become a voluntary fast. And so when we have to go through pains, maybe we can assign them to the cross and say, maybe the only reason I'm being frustrated or have this difficult thing happen is because I'm being given the gift to fulfill the sufferings, fill up the sufferings of Christ, uh, which St. Paul says. And that's
2: think that Colossians. could be such a great
0: gift. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, mm. Lewis describes the process of transformation as inexorable. And I'll admit, I had to look up that word the first time I read it. <laughs> so what shall does Should we translate it for Matt? Let, let you, you go for it, Andrew. And, and also explain why Lewis thinks that this process is inexorable. Well, it's it means unavoidable.
1: Thank you for not having me take a stab at that.
2: That's okay. <laughs>
0: uh, inexorable, unavoidable, uh, ineluctable is another word that's close uh, to the same. But nothing that has not died can ever be raised from the dead, right? Mm. Unless a seed, a grain of wheat falls to the ground. And so nothing can enter here which can unless it unless it becomes heavenly and it's what you see in lewis's second best book these people need to suffer the last outrage of themselves and let themselves go but once they do uh, like the man with the red lizard that mm-hmm. lizard that bedeviled him when he gives it to christ when he allows the the, the angel to kill it it is raised to be the horse that far surpasses everybody else. And so God gives us these difficulties. God even gives judgments as an act of mercy to wake us up from ourselves and to, to to lift our eyes like Orwell at the stream from herself and her own thirst to the God of love and to realize that God is doing even these difficult things. Um, there's this wonderful story. I know I'm going on and I'll shut up. Well, there's this wonderful story about Lewis. After and, he finishes the story. After I finish the story. <laughs> he goes to it Cambridge. It is inexorable.
2: He, he will tell it.
0: It is it's, it's, it's <laughs> ineluctable. The ineluctable Lazo. When he gets the professorship at Cambridge, it triples his salary, doubles his 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 prestige, cuts his workload in half, and then he gets there and he starts giving lectures, and his lectures are really poorly attended. And he said, "I've never had such poorly attended lectures." And then he says, "This is just in a letter. This is it's an admission to a friend." He said, "It's probably frightfully good for me. <laughs> our humilities, our humiliations, our frustrations are probably frightfully good for us." And in letters to Malcolm, he says, um, "If you think of this world designed as designed for happiness, it's going to disappoint you all the time. If you think of this world as a prison." or a schoolyard of virtue where the difficult
2: things happen to train us up, then it's not
0: a bad place at all.
2: (laughs) And his point is that this training, this transformation, Mm -hmm. it's necessary, it's not arbitrary. It's like back in Mere Christianity, in the Count and the Cost chapter, Lewis unpacks Christ's words about be ye perfect. Mm -hmm. And his point there and here is the same. Entry into heaven, whether it's ourselves or our loves, it depends on one condition, which relates to the very nature of heaven, that nothing can be there that isn't heavenly. Mm-hmm. In the book of Revelation, it says nothing unclean can enter heaven. But I, I, I like I like this rendering: nothing which isn't heavenly, nothing which isn't heavenly can enter heaven. Mm-hmm. And he points out that we can only enter heaven because Christ died and He ascended into heaven, and being joined with Him, uh, we can join Him there. And then he asks this, he says, must we not suppose that the same is true of a man's loves? Only those into which love himself has entered will ascend to love himself. Mm -hmm. But we've already mentioned that something else has to precede this resurrection.
1: Mm -hmm. Good Friday.
2: Good Friday.
0: Lent must come before Easter.
2: Mm.
0: Right? The mortification.
2: Yeah, and he says that, These loves can be raised with him only if they have, in some degree or fashion, shared his death. If the natural element in them has been submitted year after year, out, or in some sudden agony, to transmutation.
1: Imagine if you spent your prayer time praying not about all these parts of yourself you want to change, but just a very specific prayer of, Lord, let me die on the cross the way you died. Let my ego be crucified. Maybe that's the word I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. And then just almost take a step back and just watch what will happen. I have to imagine it would be scary, those words to utter. (laughs) I mean, I can think of right now what would be a few things that could kill my ego. And oh boy, I pray to God they don't happen, (laughs) which is the exact opposite prayer. I should really be praying they do happen. But oh... Just, just think about that for a second. That'd be
0: rough. But that's exactly the medicine we need. None of us will make us out of make it out of this world alive. But as Lewis says in Till We Have Faces, die before you die. There is no time after. And we carry around in us the death of Christ. <laughs> they're <laughs> sipping, they're swelling. And it's that death to self. And he talks about that in mere Christianity. He talks about that at the end of mere Christianity, right? But unless I allow God to raise up my life, right? As long as I own it and try to live it myself, once I give it up and let it be put to death, like uh, like the red lizard, it can never transform into the very thing that can carry me further and faster than I could ever get on my own
2: and Lewis drives this point home by considering the question that you'll occasionally hear kicked around among theology nerds and it's how will we relate to each other in heaven some people say will we even recognize each other and will relationships such as marriages will they have any bearing in heaven and the eastern and western uh, traditions have t- had slightly different takes on that particular question but i love Lewis's answer because he says that how a love relation appears in heaven will very much depend on what kind of love it was, or at least was becoming, on earth. And he says, if it was purely natural, you think about when you go to a cocktail party and you're just, you're just killing time, you're going around making polite chit-chat, nothing of any detail, nothing of any substance is actually said. He says, if it was purely natural, in eternity, would that even be interesting? And he makes the suggestion, in heaven, I suspect, a love that has never embodied love himself would be equally irrelevant. And here's the line. For nature has passed away. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Mm-hmm.
1: In, in another spin on this, I interpreted it not only irrelevant, but I thought of the word when I was reading undesirable. Irrelevant is more neutral. You can almost think of a negative two. If you don't do it, it won't be with there and you lose it. But I like the, the reason I like the word undesirable is because you, you won't miss it. You won't, you, you won't even want it. You, when you actually experience mm. love himself or a transformed natural love, mm-hmm. the lesser is not even going to be desirable.
2: Mm-hmm. It's like comparing heaven and the gray town in The Great Divorce. Why would you want the houses of the gray town when you've seen the glory of even the foothills of heaven?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Or the mansion of the house of love that Orwell sees when she finally even kneels in a position of humility. Orwell, until we have faces.
1: I'm all out, Andrew. It's not good. Oh, there's a little dram left.
0: Okay, here we go.
2: <laughs> You're
1: not allowed to mention it anymore on the show, though, because of this episode. I got no more alcohol. Hold I your breath I don't think for he's going to be able to do that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we have two more sections left, so let's see if Andrew can restrain himself. No money says no.
0: You're a a wisely betting man.
2: (laughs) The next section is actually a little weird, because Lewis takes a bit of a detour, and it initially confused me. I had to read this section several times before I think I worked out what he was doing. Because he says that he wants to dispel a possible misunderstanding. He doesn't want to leave people with the idea. He calls it a widespread illusion that reunion with the loved dead is the goal of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. And he quotes that famous line from Augustine's Confessions, thou hast made us for thyself, and our heart has no rest till it comes to rest in thee. Mm -hmm. And Lewis says that that's a great line. You can believe it in church or when you're in woods at springtime. He says, but it's not quite so comforting on a deathbed. And he says, it's actually not hard to imagine that an eternity with our loved ones wouldn't be great. Hmm. But he says that whenever he tries to use his faith like that, it weakens. He actually argues that when he believes in God, when that belief is central, he can believe in heaven as a colliery. But he finds that the reverse just doesn't work. Yeah. And he says that we find thus by experience that there is no good applying to heaven for earthly comfort. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to kick it over to you guys before I reveal my hand. Why do you think he's been saying all of this? Because it, it seems a slightly different topic, and he doesn't really explain why he's suddenly transitioned to talking about it, other than that he just doesn't want people to think that the goal of the Christian life is just be united with the people that we've loved here on Earth.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, I'll start with, it was similar. I, I felt like this was climaxing, building, really loved incarnation, theosis stuff. And then this came, and I go, huh, this feels like the ending on a movie that didn't need to be there and should have ended five minutes before this. Mm -hmm. That was my thought. And I still probably think I would have personally selected and put this in a different, a little bit earlier. But with that said, I do like the point in here. It goes back to what he mentioned earlier in an earlier part of charity, that that vulnerable part where it talked about protecting yourself. And maybe you want to go to God to receive your love because you're afraid of being hurt by natural loves. Mm -hmm. Well, His whole argument there was you can't go to God for that sake, like as a defense mechanism or a safe investment. You can only go to God for God himself or go to mere Christianity. When he says, it's a very Lewisian idea, you can't go to God to find yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to go to God for him's sake himself, and then he'll give you yourself. Same idea here. You can't go to God for the sake of... This you have to go to him for himself.
0: Look for yourself, and in the end, you will only find rage, ruin, despair, decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. And Boom. so, yeah, the end of mere Christianity. And then our true selves are waiting for us in him. He says a couple of pages earlier. Here's the thing: Lewis believed that there would be pets in heaven because uh, they were they are our loves and they are resurrected with us. But here's what I will say, and I'm sure I'm going to get this question, and I'm not going to give this answer to an eight-year-old who just lost their favorite dog, but I might (laughs) give this answer to their parents in private. Will my dog, who just died, be in heaven? If my dog is not in heaven, it won't matter one whit, and it won't diminish Mm -hmm. my happiness at all.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Or if it would increase the pleasures forevermore, then my dog will be there. If it, if my dog is not there, it won't matter because every tear will be wiped away. Now, I hope and believe that our pet, our, our pets and everybody that we have, have invested love in uh, is in heaven. It reminds me at the end of the last battle where um, Edmund says, I think it's Edmund, or, uh, used, uh, yeah, Edmund, who says, have you noticed you can't feel fear anymore, right? There's no fear in heaven. There's no regret. There's no crying, right? Maybe the only thing that would keep me from crying is seeing all of my loved ones. But heaven is not about my loved ones. Remember what Lewis says in Screwtape. You should, we should either be thinking about the present day or we should think, be thinking about eternity, which means Christ. It means God. And so heaven will be him, and in him, at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore.
2: Mm-hmm. The way I would say to a child would be, if you need your dog in heaven to be happy, you'll have your dog. <laughs> and God loves your dog more than you do. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And but whether or God not you need that you. is a slightly different question. Sure. sure. But I think you guys have hit all of the major points as to why I think Lewis is talking about this now. Because it's actually really the central thesis of the book that we can't make natural loves our ultimate good. We can't make them gods. Mm -hmm. There's only one God, and he has to be first. And our natural loves, they have to be taken up into charity. And since we were made for God, uh, then everything has to be oriented towards him, not our loved ones. And he actually argues that anything that we've loved in our loved ones, anything we've loved on earth, actually pointed to God. He says, only by loving in some respect like him, or only by being a manifestation of his beauty, loving kindness. There you go, Andrew, said. Wisdom <laughs> or goodness has any earthly beloved excited our love. Mm-hmm. So what I love in my wife, in my friends, in my family, they, they're, they're a shadow, a, a pale reflection of love himself. Mm-hmm. And we keep getting into problems because of how we relate to these different loves. Mm-hmm. He says, it is not that we have loved them too much. He keeps emphasizing this. It's not possible to love people uh, too much or things too much even. But we didn't quite understand what we were loving. Mm-hmm. And we were loving it in the wrong way, to the wrong degree, at the wrong time.
0: Yes. Yes. It's twisted. It's bent. Um, and that's what inordinate. Weston tries to do with the with the Green Lady the whole book. Yeah, man.
2: Mm.
1: I just said inordinate. Yeah. Inordinate. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
2: And Lois promises that in heaven we'll see things clearly. We'll see the source of everything that we've loved. He writes, In heaven there will be no anguish and no duty of turning away from our earthly beloveds, first because we shall have turned already. Mm -hmm. This is the inexorable transformation he's talking about. Be ye perfect, we will have turned already by the time we're before God's throne. From the portraits to the original, from the rivulets Mm -hmm. to the fountain, from the creatures he made lovable to love himself. Mm-hmm. But secondly, because we shall find them all in him. By loving him more than them, we shall love them more than we do now. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and don't you find, David, that um, as a married man, you are more suited to love Marie better when you spend time with the Lord?
2: Mm-hmm. If
0: your relation, I can see how snappish I am with Kristen, <laughs> whether or not I read my Bible that morning. Yeah. And I often have just, it's almost like taking a a pill. If I, you know, taking some daily medicine. If I have read my Bible, I'm almost always, without even thinking about it, a little bit more patient, right? When I have gotten my relationship with God and God's love correct, all of the rest of the natural loves will take
2: their proper place. As he says in mere Christianity, if you want to get wet, go into the fountain. If you want to get warm, go near the fire. Mm-hmm.
1: And that was always, for me, a, a hard concept to accept, but my personal experience absolutely supports it. Mm. When I would go to daily Mass and just receive the Eucharist daily, the mm-hmm. Blessed Sacrament, it was... Uh, it honestly, was like taking a pill. Mm-hmm. And, and you really hate to belittle it to language like that, but there it isn't a better like way magic. to describe it. Mm-hmm. It really do make it sound like magic. But it's it just it shocked me, the transformation that happened over time. And then as I fall away from it, there's seasons of life where you're just not going near as frequently. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and and that can also, you can fill in the gap. Like you said, It could be scripture, it could be anything mm-hmm. but your, your typical prayer routines. It's like, huh, it, it's amazing the difference it makes and it really feels mm-hmm. like magic.
0: When I first started teaching at Houston Christian High School, we had a, a they have a retreat for the, for the freshmen every, the first couple of days of school. And I got up in the morning to get a cup of coffee and all of my other freshman teachers, many of them, were sitting in the cafeteria an hour before the kids got up and they were reading their Bibles. And I'm like, you know what? I need to get back to reading my Bible. And I need to do it because I'm teaching a bunch of, uh, uh, of teenagers. I need to do it for protection. I need to read, <laughs> read my Bible so that I could protect for protection, but not so that I could protect myself from them so that I could protect them from myself right i needed to be aligned to god's holy word in order to not hurt people as much as i do and yes uh, like lewis says uh, apart next to the blessed or next uh, Next to
2: the blessed sacrament
0: itself, your neighbor, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And so, I need to be taking the sacrament. I need to be reading the Bible. I need to be praying and doing my devotion. You know, maintaining my devotional life, so that I can treat and esteem and see somebody for the worth that God has in them. I need that daily adjustment of vision, um, or else Mm -hmm. I won't. I won't treat them like like they should be treated.
2: And Louis says that here on earth. It's about loss and renunciation very often. you know, we are talking about what it would be like in heaven, but here on earth, we lose. We, we have to renounce some of our natural loves. And he even suggests that some of the losses that are forced upon us, think about Pam and the great divorce, mm-hmm. it's so to point us towards it's the source, point us outwards and upwards towards God.
0: Mm-hmm. Out of ourselves into Christ we must go. Is what Lewis mm. says in the Great Divor- or in, in mere Christianity. Out of ourselves into Christ we must go, and that's the only way to make anybody safe, including ourselves.
2: <laughs> and as we come to the final section of this book, Lewis reminds us that he's spoken about two different graces in charity: supernatural need love and supernatural gift love. But he claims that God can give a third; He can awake in man towards himself, a supernatural appreciative love. And he says, here lies the true center of all human and angelic life. But after saying that, he then says, where a better book would begin, mine must end. I dare not proceed. Hmm. Why doesn't he want to carry on at this point? This is a short chapter. He's got a couple more pages.
0: <laughs> he doesn't want to carry on for the same reason that he can't write the angelic sequel to Tape right? He said he couldn't write a book like the Screwtape Letters from, a, from an angel's point of view because he was already being the very best man that he could, right? And so he had only, what is Over the Rhine, the wonderful band say, we're all just beginners when it comes to love, right? So um, he doesn't know enough about divine love. He could probably have written another chapter after Joy died, um, and had he lived five or ten more years after her passing, he may could have written another passage. But he's getting as close as he can to the divine love and realizing his own inability. And that's why I think that clarity and charity are the overarching themes in Lewis's life. He wants everything he, he does to, to help us to see more clearly the divine love of God.
2: But at the end, he alludes to the book by Brother Lawrence, a wonderful book if listeners haven't read it, *The Practice of the Presence of God*. And this was the quote of the week, where Lewis says, "If we can't practice the presence of God, it's something to practice the absence of God, to become increasingly aware of our unawareness." Mm-hmm. And Andrew, you yes. chose this as the quote of the, quote <laughs> of the week,
0: and to to
2: see Explain. the place where the love of
0: God, where our love of God ought to be. And here's where it combines Lewis's two best books. Mm-hmm. Because a cataract is a waterfall. Remember the waterfall at the end of mm-hmm. the great divorce? The, the angel. Where God's voice is speaking, the angel's voice. To become increasingly aware of our unawareness. And it's what the great saints do. It's why St. John of the Cross talked about the, the dark night of the soul. The closer I get to God, the more I realize that I lack him, that I need him. That I'm nothing, that I'm dross. Um, like a man who stands beside a great waterfall and hears no noise. Or like a man in a story who looks in a mirror and finds no face there. Or looks in the mirror, her father says, what do you see, see? Who are you? And she wails and she says, I am unget. But the great irony is she looks in the mirror and she says, I am love. And she doesn't realize that this love that would consume her consumes her because it wants to burn away all that's worst in her and give her herself back. Orwell's true self was waiting in Ungut for her. And she comes to that conclusion uh, like a man in a story who looks in a mirror and finds no face there. Um. And he realizes that even at the end of his life, this is 1960, less fewer than three years before he died, at the end of his life, he still is just a beginner when it comes to knowing what love is and how to do it. And joy taught him so much. This, I think that there's almost a conversion experience here because he says, to know that one is dreaming is to be no longer perfectly asleep, which should remind us of the very end of Surprise by Joy, mm-hmm. right? That his conversion was not that when he set out for the Whipsnade Zoo, he did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. But when he got there, he did. Um, it's, but he hadn't spent the time in thinking. It's like a man who is awake slowly becomes aware that he is awake, right? And that's that poem prayer, to be no dreamer but thy dream. And so he realizes at the end of his life that he is just beginning to love. And that's encouraging to me because I'm so terrible at loving as well. I'm sure you guys are much better at it, which is part of why you allow me in and allow me
2: (laughs) This person sanctifies me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sanctifying us, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: that's the landlord. Time to wrap things up. We want to thank everyone for spending time with us. We have now gone through all of the chapters in the sections of this book. And it has been a fantastic journey so far, but we have so much more coming up. I want to thank all of our top tier supporters, Thomas, Deborah, and Nani Mouse, Bill and Joanna Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David,
0: and Rowdy. So please join us next time
2: when we'll be going further up in further in cheers cheers cheers